0: This is an ABC podcast. Right, do you think that here on What the Duck, we should have a competition for the most ducking weird animal in Australia? Because I have a nomination. The desert duck. I'm talking about the emu. Dr Ann Jones with you, and this is What the Duck, the show from ABC Science, where I essentially seem to wander around the countryside trying to get to the bottom of mysteries in the natural world. And this week, emus. Huge bird, doesn't fly, and is, frankly, just silly. Sounds like the annoying kid in class who can't stop tapping things... And despite being on the coat of arms and running backwards and forwards like a chook with its head off across the continent, the emu actually has many, many secrets. And Julia Ryland's, she loves them.
1: My name's Julia Ryland and my PhD was on emus, so that's my sort of area of
0: expertise. And side note, she also has a new puppy.
1: Oh, so, um... he's leaving the mic. <laughs> this is Chibi. He's a border collie and he's 10 weeks old and he's exceptionally wiggly. <laughs> oh. Oh,
0: he's licking me! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Chibi, being a baby, also chimes into this program occasionally. So, okay, stupid question first: What is an emu?
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I mean they're a pretty unusual creature, so I don't think that's a silly question
0: at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But ironically, most of what we actually know about these truly weird mega birds doesn't come from the wild. EMUs are farmed across the world, actually more so in other countries than is
1: Australia, amazingly. But we don't have a lot of information about what
0: occurs in the wild.
1: This is there's a few reasons. I think they're very hard to study, which I definitely found out along the way.
0: For a bird with a reputation for an IQ in the negative scores the emus did remarkably well avoiding being studied for Julia's PhD.
1: So when I first started, I naively thought, oh, why would no one have studied nesting behaviour and, you know, hatching success in the wild and and questions around reproduction? And, And I sort of went on this journey to find out that, you know, across most of Australia, people never find emu nests. And some of the arid areas where you can fly a plane over the top, you can, they're, they're huge, you can see them, but in any forested areas, they're really difficult to find. So looking for eggs, looking for chicks, and understand anything about that life stages is really, really difficult, surprisingly, for such an enormous, you know, kind of iconic bird.
0: One way to find a nest is to follow a bird back to a nest. But with an animal that can run up to about 50 kilometers an hour, that means you've got to either be an extremely fast runner or you've got to get sneaky and track him but it's difficult to get an emu to wear a Fitbit.
1: Well, it was possibly the most anxiety-inducing adventure story for me um, ever. Uh, So they're such a tricky animal to catch. A lot of birds, you know, people put trackers on, um, they'll use mist nets, fairly low risk if you know what you're doing. But with emus, of course, you know, there's no way that we can do that. In, I think it was the 60s or 70s, Stephen Davies, who was a a fantastic emu researcher, the only real emu researcher that sort of was life dedicated to them, he put some bands on some emus
0: are metal bracelets that go around bird legs and there's a national scheme for them so it's all regulated except that the National Authority didn't actually have any bands big enough so Davies had to make his own.
2: For thousands of years, the emu was hunted for
0: food. And Stephen Davies was actually a really interesting character in Australian ornithology. People actually commented that he even resembled the emu being tall and long-limbed with wild eyebrows.
2: Emus breed here regularly, and Dr Stephen Davies of CSIRO in Western Australia began a study of the biology of the emu at this point on Mylura Station in 1959.
0: This is him talking in a 1977 ABC doco called Emu Country.
2: Using aerial surveys, we could show that in settled country, where there were permanent waters, There were ten times as many emus as in the unsettled areas where there were no permanent waters. This is how the emu became a problem animal. The emu can live on the resources of the bush. Man enhanced those resources by providing permanent water and the explosion of emus followed.
0: And some of his ideas for research into emus on stations, in the Murchison in WA, were sort of unusual.
2: Emus come in to drink every day and they can be drugged easily and caught for banding. He spiked their drinks. They show signs of weariness and fear as they approach the water troughs.
0: And they bloody well should have by the sound of it.
2: The number of sips the emus take from the drugged water trough is counted to give some idea of how much drug they've taken. After 40-odd gulps, it's likely the emu will go down within a kilometre of the trough. Their tracks are found by the trough and the emus are followed quietly through the scrub so they won't be startled and begin to run before the drug brings them to the ground.
0: Yeah, I don't think you're gonna get ethics approval for putting anaesthetic in an open water trough these days. And it gets even better. I'm reading here from a tribute published in Pacific Conservation Biology in 2021, the year after his death. According to the tribute, one of the methods he pioneered for catching the emus involved perching on the bonnet of a short wheelbase Land Rover driven at high speed through the scrub, trying to drop a noose on the end of a long pole over the neck of a running emu. Surprisingly, sometimes it worked, and even more surprisingly, no-one was badly hurt. This sort of process clearly wouldn't translate to the uh, modern oh and and university vehicle use guidelines, which is what Julia Ryland deals with in her EMU research.
1: So I worked with an awesome dart gun operator. And so we did a trial at a sort of 600 hectare area And the emus, they're uh, they're free-ranging, so they're doing their own thing, but they're quite used to humans being around. So we could approach them kind of, (laughs) again, in a Land Rover, sort of try to sneak up on them. You sort of use this CO2-powered dart gun that you then uh, shoot a dart into their leg, and then it'll it'll sedate them. Once they're sort of uh, anaesthetised, you can then go up and we we (laughs) put some sort of wrap around their leg sort of to stop any movement. And we could put trackers on them and you know do a whole bunch of measurements. But that sort of stalking in the Land Rover of the Emu was was completely beyond my anxiety um coping <laughs> levels.
0: Yeah, I can't even imagine. Because like this bird is is as big as you, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But actually, they're quite pathetic. They're not very brave birds. <laughs> So people sort of always view them as this really aggressive, you know, because they're so big and they've got these enormous claws. But um, I, I pretty much found as long as you pretend to be taller than the emu, he wasn't really very game. And uh, so he'd back away pretty quickly. And, and taller than an emu for me is really just a hand above my head and
0: he'd sort of scuttle off. <laughs> Wait, so so you don't actually have to be taller than the emu, you just have to act as if you are...
1: Yes, yes, pretty really much. Just sort of <laughs> puff yourself up with a with an emu shaped hand above the head, um, and they
0: never seem to go me. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is hilarious. And I'm imagining that when you said that you you know you wrapped up their their legs so that they couldn't kick because that is one of their major forms of defence, if they're cornered, is to actually use their massive feet, right? To protect themselves.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think their first line of defence is always to run. <laughs> they're not fighters naturally. I don't I don't really think they will just sort of, you know, they can run so quickly that they, they just they'll sprint. Um, but yeah, if they are cornered or in mating season when their females are fighting for males, they will give each other a fair kick. And this does some fairly brutal Damage, and so there's farmers who've talked about getting kicked. They're in hospital with stitches, and yeah, so it's definitely not something you want to test.
0: Yeah, I know that when I've been recording on a farm before and wanted to go and get some of the sounds of the emu, that that, that it was incredibly intimidating.
1: If you know, I think a lot of people would back off or, or sort of run, and they will 100% chase you. Oh. They they. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's all, it's all a mind game. You've just got to make sure that they know you're not scared. Don't show any fear and the emu will be fine.
0: It's funny you bring up the fact that it's all a mind game, though, because I would have said that among country people, who spend a lot of time on country roads, will tell you that emus are among the stupidest of creatures because... Instead of running away, they will often run parallel or in front of you as you're going along. So do we have any data on how smart slash stupid emus actually are?
1: Only anecdotal, but there are (laughs) plenty of anecdotal evidence that they're not uh, the smartest of birds. Uh, I remember a farmer once said to me that they can do two things pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they can eat and they can run, but they cannot do both at the same time. And they, they aren't the best at uh, yeah multitasking. So I've seen some pretty um pretty funny moments of, of emus doing some pretty dumb things. But I think the mind games, and that, that's exactly right. They, it is a mind game, but really we should be smarter. And if all it takes is sort of, you know, be a little bit taller and a hand above the head, then I think we should be able to out um, outwit them.
0: Pretty quickly. You say that, but if your fear mechanism kicks in and you turn around, that's the thing is like often, you know, you're not sure whether you should ever turn your back or what you should do anyway. It's like now I'm describing it like it's Jurassic Park. Just don't move. They won't doubt to see you. you know? <laughs> right. So another weird fact for the books. Getting one up over an emu in a siege is all about the mind games. And a cursory Google search which has me writing, how big is an emu's brian, because I can't type, leads to the fact that the emu brain only makes up 0.6 of its body weight. Ours is apparently 2% of our body weight. And another fact is that its actual eyeballs, one of them is bigger than its brain ball. A story that shows their stunning capacity for logical thought while running can be found in the Avicultural Society of New South Wales newsletter and is attributed to Tim Nielsen, who said... A colleague was driving along a dusty old road and noticed that an emu was running parallel with his car and the fence. Out of curiosity, he accelerated ahead, pulled over and continued to observe the emu, which by this stage was several hundred metres away. The emu continued to run towards the car and, upon reaching it, proceeded to run straight into it, knocking itself out in the process. I just realised that we didn't finish the tagging story. Oh, yeah. What we found was that... The amount of effort it
1: took to actually tag them and then the number of nests that we found, it just was not feasible. The other thing that we really noticed, they are incredibly resilient to the anaesthetic drugs. So we were having to give them more than what you would predict for their body size. You've got an emu that is in the wild, that's sprinting past, it's gonna have so much adrenaline in it that it's gonna be wearing off a lot of those drugs. And that we just decided that trying to capture wild birds just didn't, the benefits didn't outweigh the kind of risks for us in the end. The emus win
0: again.
2: The emu was one of the supporters of the Australian coat of arms, but by 1932, its migrations to the Southwest had made it a nuisance to wheat farmers.
0: This is in the southwest of WA where the agricultural watering points had created something like a 10-fold increase in emu numbers.
2: In the Campion district, farmers persuaded the federal government to send the Australian army to defend their crops with Lewis machine guns. The series of actions that followed came to be known as the Emu War.
0: Incredibly bizarre. They deployed artillery to kill the largest bird in Australia with the smallest brain in Australia. And it didn't work.
2: The emu war ended when the 7th heavy battery of the Royal Australian Artillery was withdrawn from the field. The emus continued to migrate into the wheatlands until they were finally stopped by a thousand kilometre fence.
0: It's still there, that fence. You might know it as the rabbit-proof fence.
2: Great numbers of emus die here.
0: So, 1970s voiceover man from the ABC. I'm sure you'll agree that emus are badass. I mean, these birds have survived being noosed off a Land Rover bonnet, they seem pretty impervious to anaesthesia, they bet the infantry, they force the government's hand in large infrastructure projects, and they've survived being a giant in a landscape full of tiny little creatures. I mean, back in the day, in the Pleistocene, there was all these huge animals, you know, wombats, huge kangaroos, goannas that could eat a corolla. But all these are gone. I mean, megafauna, that's a thing of the past.
1: No, so um, megafauna is generally animals that are over about 40 kilos. So most are extinct, yes, but we still have some that are kind of hanging on, which we would still consider
0: to be megafauna, and the emu is one of those. But in terms of the other megafauna, the wombats and whatnot, they went way before the European invasion. And what was it about the emu we know today that enabled it to survive where those other large creatures did not?
1: I mean, one of the things that makes the emu such a survivor is, first off, it occurs across an enormous area, so it
0: more or less inhabits every type of habitat across Australia. So that means if something catastrophic happens in one place, they've got other options where they're capable of surviving. It's such a
1: generalist that it's not looking for any specific type of food. It's able to adapt. It's not got a territory, so they're not sort of staying in that one place for their whole life. They're quite willing to kind of get up and leave and then it can move really quickly.
0: Yeah. They can walk and run for kilometres each day to avoid a threat. And this puts them at an advantage over something more sedentary like a snail. And, you know, you see these enormous movements in Western Australia where they move following rain patterns. So
1: coming from the north to the south following big thunderstorm clouds. And that ability to make those big shifts means that when things like drought happens, you don't just get this enormous
0: wipeout. I mean, you absolutely get thousands upon thousands of birds dying, but at a species-wide level, they're able to cope. I
1: guess then the other thing is when we start thinking about maybe this, they've got some adaptations that make them a little bit less likely to have been hunted by humans. They were hunted by Indigenous group. European settlers also tried to hunt them, but they're extremely difficult to catch. They're fast, they're manoeuvrable... And yeah, they're able to move on to different areas and avoid um, other threats.
0: That Gondwanan picture I have in my head of giant creatures roaming Australia, those skeletons you've probably visited in a museum, they're not all dead. In fact, they're on our coat of arms and running across roads in a dangerous manner. But surely, surely, surely something can kill them. Like one of the harshest environments in the world the Australian desert and Julia Ryland and her new puppy are experts in emu survival which starts with one of their prettiest features it's it's not their dreamy eyes so they have these non-barbed
1: feathers which are sort of um for insulation and, and probably some other things but they're not for fly all the little sort of hooks on the feathers don't kind of connect up and so they've just got this big fluffy look
0: yeah, they definitely look like when they're running along they're silky, right? As if they're in like a shampoo commercial. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and they've got a lot of feathers, a lot of feathers. So, um, yeah, you some unfortunately, sometimes you see them sort of try to jump over fences and there's this big ball of um, feathers. But, yeah, they, I mean, they occur kind of across all of Australia, so they've got to be pretty well insulated against the heat and the cold, um, you know, if they occur in deserts and in alpine areas. So I think those feathers would help a lot for insulation.
0: Mm-hmm. They also have those great stonking tall legs, which holds their body right up off any hot ground, right?
1: They they certainly do. And those big, big legs, like all birds, um, is an awesome area to be able to dissipate heat. So they can get rid of a lot of heat off of those legs as well when it's really, really hot. And then, you know, Like most birds, they can sort of nestle down and sit on them and and pop their bill in their feathers when it gets colder and to avoid too much heat loss.
0: Yeah, and and super cute when they're all curled up like a little croissant. Um, Yes. Is it the world's biggest drumstick?
1: It would be. It would be an awful drumstick, though. They haven't got much meat on them. Well, they're 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 very sort of leathery and... Mm, They've sort of got these big leathery scales on them. Oh. Um, I I don't know if I... Maybe I'm biased. I am vegetarian. I will uh, admit this. But I can't imagine they're particularly... um, They're a drumstick that many people would find appealing.
0: But it is literally... Like, that top bit um, underneath the feathers is sort of shaped like a chicken drumstick.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, like they're so covered in feathers. I've never seen a naked emu, to be <laughs> honest with you. That's probably love.
0: <laughs> you know, like, I mean, naked birds, generally speaking, uh, lose a lot of their appeal.
1: <laughs> yes, and I think this would very much be the case. I mean, they're actually not, they're actually a lot smaller under, they're a lot of fluff and a lot less bird underneath there. So, you know, for such a big bird, they they don't actually weigh that like sort of 30 to 40 kilos, oh my God. Um, or for sort of 30, 45 kilos, but for an animal that's sort of two metres tall, that's
0: actually not, you know, that heavy. Think of a two metre model, 40 kilograms, all legs. It's like the worst of the 1990s heroin chic aesthetic, but in a bird. It's mostly feathers. I mean, imagine what it'd be like going through a car wash.
1: The other reason why they're so light, which I find so cool, you know, most birds have hollow bones, which helps keep them nice and light. So when they're flying, they, they're not expending too much energy and they can actually get in the sky. Emus and a lot of the other ratites, except for some of the kiwis, they still have these hollow bones. So even though they're not flying anymore, they've still retained
0: this trait from when their ancestors used to fly, which I find pretty pretty amazing. The phrase hollow legs can now only be applied to emus. Sorry, Grandma. And look, I think it's oft quoted, but...
2: The male emu does all the incubation.
0: Yeah, you're right, mate. This is my show. The male emu does all the incubation. I think
1: it's 1% of birds have male-only parental care, Um, and the emu is one of these.
0: The female will bonk quite a few blokes actually and then lay eggs and as soon as she's laid she's off in a cloud of dust she leaves the male with all the responsibility.
2: He sits on the eggs for eight weeks without eating or drinking. His body temperature drops three or four degrees centigrade and he becomes almost torpid. Incubation extends through two cold wet months and hatching then takes about four days.
1: Then he has these chicks that are sort of up and running, so he's not feeding them, but he's still, you know, hanging out with them, guarding them for, you know, 18-odd months. But because the emus have this sort of polyandrous, which means that lots of females are mating with lots of males and, and vice versa, lots of males are mating with lots of females, it means that when females are lame, not all of those eggs will actually be related to the males. So he ends up looking after lots of little chicks that are not related to him at all, which is just a crazy, a crazy idea that
0: he's looking after all these random chicks. They're stripy, by the way, when they're chicks, they're very cute
1: but I've definitely seen them incubating all sorts of things that they're not going to have a lot of luck with. Um, I've often seen the males incubating patty melons. So that's the melon, not the uh, small uh, kangaroo hoppy thing, which one of my friends (laughs) one time thought I was referring to him sitting on. Yeah. Um, I've also seen a male trying to incubate a green chemical plastic tub um, there was oh. footage online of a male trying to incubate a mannequin head.
0: Oh, so, oh that's creepy. As <laughs> they well. definitely, yeah,
1: it was, it was quite creepy. So, definitely, that, that urge is definitely strong.
0: So, on one hand, you've got the emu dad being dad of the year and going it alone and being super dedicated. And on the other hand, he has no bloody idea what's going on.
1: And from all of the kind of anecdotal reports, he also doesn't do a lot of defence. He does a lot of running and they do a lot of trying to keep up.
0: Does he go along potentially just accruing more chicks as he goes, making a sort of nursery?
1: I, you know, people have said that to me, um, whether or not that's intentional. Uh, a colleague said that one time they were out at Fowler's Gap, which is sort of western New South Wales, two male emus with two separate groups of chicks that sort of got, you know, spooked by something, ran one direction, and then one ran away with three-quarters of the chicks and the other ran away with sort of a quarter of the chicks.
0: Have we considered the possibility that he just might not be able to tell them apart? Don't know which ones. (laughs) Yes. Don't know which ones are mine. I think. (laughs) I'll just look after them. We're fine.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And I think there is a big part of the the equation that that is the case. Perhaps not that much um, strategy involved. Maybe he's not quite that cunning. It definitely is a strategy because it might just mean that he doesn't aggressively chase off other chicks because if he has more, you know, if he has more chicks with him there's a greater chance that the chicks that are related to him survive just by
0: pure probability. So maybe a recruitment of other chicks as potential fodder (laughs) for wedge-tailed eagles or something. (sighs) Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so fascinating. Even though, you know, I make fun of them, I sort of love that they've got their secrets. I I really loved one of the reviewer of my thesis. His comment was something along the lines of,
1: you really just have given me more questions than you've answered.
0: (laughs) And my God, that sounds like a winner for the weirdest animal in Australia. What the Duck is a production of ABC Science, and if you'd like to nominate a plant, mineral or animal or something... That's the weirdest thing in Australia. Send us an email, whattheduck, at abc.net.au. I'm Dr Ann Jones and I produce What the Duck with Patria Ladgrove and script editing from Joel Werner. We produce the program mainly on the lands of the Wadawurrung and Kurna people with experts and bird sounds from all over the continent.